0: Poor Mark, there's good news to you.
3: If we ain't all
4: free, ain't none of us free. You're listening to Alabama's only union talk radio show, The Valley Labor Report, with Adam Keller and Jacob Morrison.
1: Welcome back. You are still listening to The Valley Labor Report, Alabama's only union talk radio program. We are now in overtime, and like I said, folks, we have got some great clips for you. First up, we've got a clip uh, from when we were back in the Athens studio, this is probably over two years ago now, where I destroy, with facts and logic, somebody who tweeted a dumb thing at me. (laughs) Enjoy. We got a tweet from David, said, So silly, David said. Right to work keeps oppressive unions from mandating its terms onto the entire workforce. Unions don't care about the workers, the customer, the product, the company, the, or the stockholders. The they only care about enriching themselves and increasing their own power. I mean, this is just like it's it's, it's silly, right? It's silly because so there there are a couple things. To know about right to work, that uh, y- and and the fact that. And, and the people who are pushing it. The people who are pushing it constantly rail on freeloaders, uh, specifically with regards to undocumented immigrants. They hate uh, people who, they, they, they ostensibly hate when people take advantage of benefits that they did not pay into. When you are in a right to work environment and you are represented by a union and you do not pay dues, you take advantage of the representation that a union brings you. And the representation that union bring that, that, that unions bring you is just objectively it makes your uh you, you know, you, you we can see like we can look at the data. You know, one of the things that folks like to say is facts don't care about your feelings. Okay. Well let's look at the facts. We can see that union workers make more. They have higher wages, something on the order of fourteen to twenty-five percent higher wages. We can see that they have better benefits. They have uh, they pay less for more health care. They have better retirements. Union workers are basically the only ones in this country that still have pensions. Where we don't have pensions, we have we still have better retirement plans. They are unions create safer work environments. Union workplaces have something on the order of eighty percent. Fewer fatalities. Union nursing homes during the pandemic had a 40 percent lower patient mortality rate than non-union work, uh, 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 non-union w- nursing homes. And you know, th- th- this fellow's telling us that that unions don't care about the customers. The patients in these nursing homes are the customers, and they experience they die 40 percent less, you know, in union nursing homes. And the reason for that is because uh, when these caretakers are able to have a voice on the job. They obviously, they don't get, you know, you don't go into nursing homework to, get rich, right? You care about the people that you uh that you know, you care about the work. And so the when workers like nurses, like people in nursing homes, have the capability to speak for themselves, to have a voice on the job, they create safer working environments. And same with teachers. Their work for teachers, their teach their working environment is the students learning environment. And so what are the things that teachers fight for? Much more often than not along with raises which they absolutely deserve and everybody can agree that teachers do not make enough in this country uh, m- even harder than they fight for raises they fight for smaller classroom sizes they fight for more uh, they fight for more equipment in the classroom they fight for nurses in the class in, in schools they fight for counselors in the schools because they care about their communities they care about their students and they uh, you know I mean it's just it's, it's just absurd on the fact on, on on its face, to believe that unions don't care about uh, the 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 communities and and the patients and the customers, uh, and and you know unions uh, to say that unions don't care about the company, obviously there's some amount of of tension there, which is which is right and good because when uh, uh, you know executives <laughs> the the profit is literally. Money that we workers create that we don't get. Okay, so what the executives make in profit is just wages that we don't get, wages that they take from us. But of course, if you don't have a company then you don't have uh, uh, you, you don't have a job unions go workers go out of their way like this this i really have so little patience for this nonsense narrative of workers and unions being greedy because we can look at the 2008 financial crisis and what did the workers give up uh, that worked for the big big 3 in the UAW that worked for uh, Ford and GM and, and and Chevrolet they gave up wages they gave up benefits they gave up health care to save the company and on top of what the workers sacrificed us as an American people paid for a bailout for these companies and what did the executives sacrifice nothing the executives didn't sacrifice a damn thing they took bonuses after they received their bailouts so I have no I have no patience for this nonsense narrative about workers and unions being greedy When the same executives at the same time, workers and their countrymen are sacrificing to keep the companies afloat, they're taking bonuses. And it's like, get a grip. Get a grip. okay? I mean, like this is it's absurd. And so, you know, the the idea that right to work is the, the idea that right to work. Uh, you know, is is just about unions wanting to build their power for its own sake. Of course we want to build our power, but why do we want to build our power? Because we want better lives for our members, for ourselves, and for our communities. Right to work is just something to divide the working class. Right to work is just something to destroy worker power and shore up corporate power. It is the government, and the other thing is that, uh, you know, folks that advocate right to work say that they hate freeloading, of course, unless it's workers freeloading off of non-members freeloading off of union representation. They also say that they hate government intervention in the free market. They hate government intervention in contracts. They hate government intervention in working conditions. There are a myriad of conditions that you agree to to have a job. You have, you know, there are all sorts of conditions of employment that, that that workplaces require. They require you to have degrees. They require you to have a uniform. They require you to have transportation. They require you to look a certain way. They require you to talk a certain way. All sorts of things that conservative free market types have no problem with. When workers get enough power in a workplace to mandate one thing as a condition of employment that Employers and employees freely agree to that one thing being you have to pay for the representation that a union provides and thus this condition of employment being a condition that increases worker power. That is the only condition of employment that conservatives and Republicans have a problem with. Ask yourself why that is is why is it that literally the only condition of employment that these free market fundamentalists have a problem with is the one condition of employment in America that we have that shores up worker power okay and once you ask yourself why that is and you answer honestly the answer is that they don't actually have a principled commitment to free markets they don't actually have a pr- principled commitment to to, uh, 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 to the freedom of private entities to agree to contracts. The reason is that they want to destroy worker power. They don't want us to get uppity. They don't want us to believe that we deserve better lives. They want us to be quiet and docile, and they want us to accept what we're given and to to uh to just to just accept it and to be uh you know meek little servants that will do whatever they say without putting up a fight that's what they want okay more seriously, here is our interview with Robin D.G. Kelly, where we discuss his book about black radical organizing in Alabama. The book is titled Hammer and Ho. This conversation is from, I believe it was the summer of 2021. Maybe it was the fall of 2021. It's been a little over a year ago. Fascinating conversation. Going to have to get him back on the show at some point, Uh, but I really enjoyed it. I know that y'all will too. Here it is. As a a Union Talk radio show host, I'm all the time getting asked for kind of a historical context. And... Every time I'm asked for that, I always reference Hammer and Hoe, Uh, and so the author of that work is Dr. Robin Kelly. So I thought, who better to talk to about this than him? So Dr. Kelly, thank you so much uh, for uh, for being willing to talk to us tonight.
2: Well, thank you so much for inviting me. I'm really looking forward to this conversation. So Dr. Kelly, I think the
1: first thing that that would be uh, that I'd be I think the audience would want to know is. The, Alab- the hammer and hoe is the history of the Alabama Communist Party during the Depression era. What made you interested in studying like such a ostensibly niche topic? What, what was it that the Alabama <laughs> Communist Party, of all things, uh, made you want to study them?
2: That's a great question, because my, my dissertation advisor asked the qu- same question. In fact, I think he used the term niche topic. Um, <laughs> And I think his joke was, it was actually more of disparaging. My project was, um, you know, you have to write a dissertation more than 50 pages. Um, my dissertation, right. by the way, was about 698 pages. And, um, I, you know, my, my road to this project really was through the political work I was doing back, um, in the 1980s. I mean, this, uh, my dissertation was written in 87. Uh, the book came out, um, revised version in 1990, so it's really 30 years. Uh, and it was a time when, um, in, the, in the late 80s, when a lot of us were involved in, um, in left organizing. Uh, in my case, I was in Los Angeles, um, involved with the anti-apartheid movement, uh, and I was actually writing about South Africa. My field was, was African history. And so I was looking at the left in South Africa and its history, and it dawned on me um, after I'd read this magnificent book uh, of Ho- it's basically Josea Hudson's life story, put together by the great historian Nell Painter, uh, which is called which is basically his his memoir world uh, memoir of Jose Hudson. Jose Hudson was a leading communist uh, in Alabama at the time, and, and was still alive, living in, in Gainesville, Florida. Uh, and it was reading that book and reading about the sharecroppers union, uh, that made me think, you know, the stuff I'm doing in South Africa sounds very similar. So my proposal at the time was to look at South Africa and the U S South and the left. Um, the South African government helped me decide to work in Alabama because in 1986, I wasn't getting into the country, <laughs> you know? I'll never forget right. the day I went to the South African consulate, you know, with my visa application and they'd see me there protesting. And the, the woman behind the glass was like, just laughing at me. Like, why would you even think about like applying to go there? So that took the South Africa part out of it temporarily. But what it did was it left me uh, with um, with Alabama. And I was going to look at the whole South, but Alabama was really the heart of the party's work, precisely because um, they were very strong in the Birmingham-Bessemer area. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was, they wanted to build uh, an industrial, uh, unionized, uh, you know, kind of uh, class movement. And it's funny, because they didn't think they would be as successful as they were in the rural areas, uh, places like Tallapoosa County, Montgomery County, you know, uh, Lowndes County. But instead, they knew Birmingham, Bessemer area was the place. So I basically followed the documents. I went, did a lot of you know research, talked to a lot of people, um, and put together this book. And again, the context is important because when I was writing it, um, it was on the verge of the collapse of the Soviet Union, the Soviet experiment, Eastern Bloc countries. It was at a moment um, when we had a decade of... You know, Reaganism and Bushism, uh, which is really, uh, you know, Reagan begins uh, the decade with this first attack on um, the air traffic controllers union. I mean, it's just the anti unionism, especially a, a, a union that actually endorsed Reagan, <laughs> right. uh, which is kind of an amazing thing. So, this was a moment when many of us were doing this kind of work, um, trying to, you know, labor uh, with labor. And the Communist Party in Alabama just seemed like a great place to study the questions. And specifically, the question that I, wanna, that I was posing was, how do you build uh, a multiracial radical movement that in, 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 a, in, in an area where the, the, the crux of the work class is mostly black, and you have a bastion of white supremacy? Like, how do you do that? Mm-hmm. And the thing that, that um, I, I have to say I learned, which for a lot of people of my generation and after was pretty shocking, is how successful the party was. And not just the party, but all the other organizations that had uh, a relationship right. with, whether it's um, the union movement, international labor defense, um, uh, whether it's you know, looking at the sharecroppers union, that they really did do a great job. An amazing thing is despite being a kind of bastion of white supremacy, which I would say all of America is, um, you had some amazing white um, working class radicals who came out, risked their lives, lost their lives in some cases, uh, to fight on behalf of the class, of the working class. And that's a, to me a lesson that we have to, continue to go back to always because there's a sense of um, almost, uh, I will not say complacency, but sort of dread that there's no possible way that you can build a multiracial movement again, that those days are are over. And they were never really that powerful anyway. But I think that the party, the story of Alabama is a story of, not just resilience, but of militancy, and it's a reminder and something I've always argued that people are too quick to write off the South. I mean, when um, I remember when when um, uh, the last president was elected, and all my colleagues here at UCLA, you know, and and people in LA were all like self-congratulatory about, oh well, you know, California didn't go uh, for Trump, and you know, we're so we're so progressive. You know, though we have the the largest prison population uh, in the country, but we're so progressive and we're, you know, the left coast and they wrote off the South. And I'm like, you don't understand that the South has always been the, the, the Achilles heel for American capitalism. I mean, you know, when you really look at it from reconstruction on down, this is where movements will take place. And sure enough, it's like. The first place where Amazon is going to finally have, you know, the corporation is going to have to deal with a union, a real union, is going to be in Alabama.
1: Right, right. Yeah, well, that's, you know, you said a few things there that, that, um, uh, you know the the timing of of the writing of your book. You, you started doing the writing and in, in right after the fall of of uh, right after the fall of the Soviet Union. I mean that you know today writing this book would would kind would it would uh, there's certainly a resurgence of, of kind of the anti capitalist left and so it wouldn't be you know somebody writing a history of the Alabama Communist Party right. today like you know it wouldn't it wouldn't really get um, it, it it wouldn't be that that, uh, abnormal, so to speak, right. but writing, you know, publishing it in, in <laughs> what was it, the late nineties or early two thousands, right. you know, right. I, I could imagine that you got a couple of, a couple of looks.
2: It's 1990, which is also strange. I mean, it came out in 1990, which okay. is exactly, which, which, but you're right. I mean, you know, you think about 89, 90, 91, this is mm-hmm. where you, th- this is basically the fall of the Eastern Bloc. but you're right. It's also the end time, of history. Yeah, the so-called end of history. Exactly, where to talk about um, communism was just like people look at you funny. But to be mm-hmm. but to be truthful, um, and this is also the case in Birmingham in that period of time because I have a lot of friends and comrades who were there in the late eighties. Um, believe it or not, there was a kind of resurgence of the left beginning in the early beginning late seventies early eighties. Um, and it was after the Greensboro massacre, for example, uh, where five, well, four members of the Communist uh, Workers Party and then one uh, person who wasn't a member but was very close to the party was shot and killed um, by the Klan and by Nazis. And that didn't actually damper; uh, it wasn't it didn't dampen rather the, the left. It actually led to even more formation. So that for those of for those of us who were inside that world. If, if, I, if I gave you the list of all the communists, Marxist-Leninists, Trotskyists, Marxist-Leninists, Maoist organizations that emerged, I'd be here all day. Right. There's so many. It just sort of took off. It wasn't a mass movement, but, but just to say that inside those circles, um, even if we saw the writing on the wall, even if we knew that the Soviet, experiment, because none of us was really sort of supporting the Soviet experiment. It wasn't really, Mm -hmm. it was no longer considered like a progressive move, but we did believe that socialism was still possible in the United States, you know, and that that shaped it.
1: That's interesting that, that you noted the, that there was a massacre that kind of kicked off, um, a, a mini, left resurgence during the time that you were writing this book, because as I read the history in your book, a similar thing happened with the strength of the Alabama communist party, because, uh, which is the Scottsboro boys, right? Can you tell us a little bit about, about, about that? And, you know, I think a lot of folks know some about the story of, of the Scottsboro boys, but they don't know how the Communist Party was involved, which they were, you know, really the only ones kind of pushing it at the time. Some of the more mainstream liberal type organizations, the NAACP, they weren't really touching it. Talk to us about the Scottsboro Boys and how it played a similar role in sparking a a real um you know really sparking the movement for an anti-capitalist left in, in working class Alabama.
2: Right. No it's a great question. And I have to give credit to Dan Carter because Dan Carter wrote the book on the Scottsboro case, um, An American Tragedy, and in in, in my reading as a graduate student trying to figure out what to do, reading that book, which does deal with the Communist Party as well, uh, also inspired me, and he became a colleague of mine at Emory University. Um, So Scottsboro is interesting because what I do in the book is I look at it from the vantage point of Alabama organizers. We think of Scottsboro strictly as an international cause celebre. But basically the story is um, these nine young men, they didn't all know each other either, were, uh, you know, a lot of them were from Tennessee, riding the rails, trying to look for jobs. Um, and like everyone in those days, you know, just jumping in a, rail, in a box car was a way to, to get around. Uh, so they happened to be there. Um, they end up getting in a fight with some white dudes uh, and and then the cops stop in Paint Rock, Alabama and um, they stop the train. When they hear about the complaint about the fight, they start arresting people and they discover two white women who are also riding roads, have no relationship to these men at all. But, and again, this is a very important lesson in terms of the kind of racial and sexual and gender politics that we, we dealt with then and we still do it today. Um, in order for these young women to try to get out of being arrested for solicitation, for whatever it is, just being mm-hmm. a women alone is, means that you're subject to police power. They said, well, these you know, these guys raped, raped us. these nine yes. men. Well, boys, some were boys. youngest right. was 13. Um, and some were like young teenagers, uh, older teenagers. So of course this never happened. Um, this, one of the, um, uh, victims, I say victims, but one of the people who was accused of Ruby Bates actually canted testimony. Mm. Um, now why did this happen? And this is where the communist party comes in. Cases like these were a dime a dozen where some black man or black men are being accused of a crime. If they're not lynched, the criminal justice system picks them up and they will be either legally lynched in the sense that they might get the death penalty or go to jail forever. Um, this happens all the time. Um, the communist party actually had something that a lot of progressive organizations didn't have, a newspaper, The Southern Worker. They had editors, they had organizers. They'd been fighting on behalf of black rights. Um, in Alabama, they were involved in a, a black girl who was who was raped by a white man trying to get justice for her. Um, there were all these other cases. In fact, there's a whole bunch of cases uh, in Alabama in 1930 involving a guy named Tom Robertson who um, was lynched because he had, a, uh, if I remember correctly, had a fight over a, a, ba- a car battery or some kind of battery. And the lynchings in Alabama and throughout the South led to a conference that was that the Communist Party held Uh, in Tennessee, in Chattanooga, I believe. And in that conference, they said, look, we need to pay attention to lynching. We need to to make this one of our agenda items. That's the context in which the Scottsboro uh, defendants are arrested and they become a case. So the party then jumped on it. The NAACP sent their attorneys, but they're not that interested. The party sent an attorney to defend these people. But what they did was, They developed a strategy which they'd already developed before through the international labor defense and that is a strategy of putting um uh injustice before the court of popular opinion so the idea was to tell the world the story of the scottsboro case to get petitions everywhere to show photographs to get stories in the press in every single country and so they they took a local story and made it an international one to the point where you had demonstrations in Tokyo, uh, free the Scottsboro boys, demonstrations in Moscow, demonstrations in Cape Town, South Africa. And that tragedy and their fight to try to free them became a mobilizing tool or not, I shouldn't say tool because that makes it seem like Mm -hmm. it's deliberate, but it became a point of mobilization for African-Americans who had no interest necessarily in the left, but saw an organization fighting on behalf of the rights of black people within a criminal justice system that they knew was unjust in the first place. And that really changed the character of what the party was doing. And a lot of people joined because of that. And it's a very similar story. It's like, you know, with Emmett Till, Mm -hmm. the, 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 the murder of Emmett Till did more to convince a lot of uh, Black people to join uh, the civil rights movement, later SNCC, SCLC, than, say, Brown versus Board of Education, because Emmett Till was like, I, they could see themselves, right. just like a lot of African Americans could see themselves suddenly caught up in some kind of dragnet and being accused of something they didn't do. And... You know, and you know, it was a tragedy in terms of how many people end up staying in jail longer than they needed to, uh, which is one day more. Uh, But the fact is that for the Communist Party and for the left generally, for the CP left, um, the Scottsboro case became that uh, that sort of rallying cry to build a movement that was not just about class struggle in the formal sense, but about racial justice.
1: Right. And that uh, my understanding of of the way the way that you presented is that that and cases like that really did a lot to convince working class uh, black folks in Alabama that like the left is is kind of where I'm going to uh, get help to make my life better. And and that's if you could talk a little bit about kind of the makeup of the party, because I think that's one of the more in, w- w- one of the most interesting things about the Alabama Communist Party is that, you know, when you think of communists, um, in the 20th century in America, you might imagine kind of somebody like me, like a yuppie, like, you know, like some, (laughs) some, some white college educated yuppie. Uh, but that was not at all the party in Alabama. So what, you know, what, what, what was up with that?
2: Right. No, it's a very, very good point. Um, this was a working class, mostly black organization and by working class, And let's just focus just focus on the two regions one is the kind of birmingham bessemer region and then the rural areas of montgomery but birmingham bessemer you're talking about steel workers iron ore uh, workers um miners um uh hold on one second um can can you close the door please i can't hear sorry about that (laughs) i can problem with pandemics you have to like do the things from home
1: (laughs) no worries no worries at all (laughs)
2: okay so um so imagine working class many of the folks uh, not all but couldn't read or write or had like maybe second or third grade education um they um were members of gospel quartets many Mm -hmm. were devout christians um the bible became a very important source for them uh in terms of uh, of kind of justifying the work that they are doing, explaining, um, there was also, so you have this, white, this black working class kind of uh, base. Um, and in fact, at one point, the Communist Party's membership was larger than NAACP in Birmingham, like much larger. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, and so it was, I wouldn't call it a mass organization, but it did have significant numbers. Um, so there's that, but then also you have white working class men and women as well, as well as a couple of outliers. I mean, there's a woman named Jane Speed who uh, who came from money and her mother also uh, came to a very wealthy uh, state. The family happened to be in uh, Vienna, I think, under fascism and saw a lot. I mean, during, during and end up coming back uh, to Alabama and then joining the Communist Party. And so she opened up a bookstore in Birmingham, a a left-wing bookstore in Birmingham, Alabama in like 1939. I mean, who does that, right? Right. (laughs) Um, And so it's an interesting group. And because it was predominantly black with with white members, there was a way in which um, African-Americans were pushed into leadership positions within the party. So Mm -hmm. imagine what it meant to be in a space where Uh, Black working class uh, men and women, often with very little formal education, could actually critique a white comrade who who you typically can't even be in the same classroom with because of segregation. Critique them and say, you know what, your positions are wrong and this is what we need to do. I mean, it was the kind of thing where the, the, the social relationships were just unheard of at the time. And it angered a lot of the white work class men and women but they stuck with it many of them did mm. and and learn and develop social relationships that i would argue were stronger and more genuine than even some of the left uh, formations in places like chicago in la in new york and philadelphia mm. you know?
1: yeah i i think that that's really interesting and and you you touched a little bit on the religiosity of these communities how and that's that's, de- uh, uh, you know, there, there are so many kind of narratives that are, that, that your book really attacks kind of head on. And, and, and another one of them is that, uh, you know, communism is, uh, anti-Christian and a- anti-religion. And certainly there are, there are, uh, you know, flavors of it that are, and Marx was not a theist, uh, right. and he did not believe that people should be, but, uh, basically everybody (laughs) in the party in Alabama was what, what was that kind of interplay there between the, you know, I you said that that they would use um, that they would use churches for party meetings. Right.
2: Exactly. Party meetings and union meetings, some churches, because of course there were churches in sort of in the payroll of the Tennessee coal and iron company, some ministers who got money basically to be union busters, Uh, which goes shows a long history, of uh, Black elite complicity in undermining working class movements. But for the most part, um, uh, the, the, the gospel quartets for some Black male members, like uh, I think it was Henry O. Mayfield and Jose Hudson, that was a circuit of, of singers that was a recruiting tool for the Communist Party. No one ever think that, right? Wow. Um,
1: but the, I've always wanted to be in a gospel quartet, so maybe, <laughs> maybe this is the way in.
2: <laughs> I know. It's, it's, it, shocked, it shocked me, but you know, I spent a lot of time with Jose Hudson telling me these stories. But also, um, the Bible became very important because and, and you know, it was a genuine use of the Bible and understanding of it. Mm. What we would think of today as liberation theology, but they weren't thinking in those terms. Right. Um, because the Bible was the text that people knew. And you know, and it was so much in the in their biblical interpretation that justified the work they were doing um, about the least of these, you know, and what does it mean to to be uh impoverished and it's a sin to have money and just basically hold on to it. So this is the kind of stuff that that drew people to the party without it necessarily becoming a trick. You know, they weren't right. trying to convince people. But the other part of of the story too, is that um, among the, the white, uh, I wouldn't say elite, but the more educated members of the party were committed, especially during the popular front, many were Jewish. And many were in fact um, uh, dealing with a Jewish community that in some cases was split, very anti-communist uh, on the one hand, but also very sympathetic uh, depending, you know, because Alabama has a long uh, history of a Jewish community there, um, and so that was also uh, an issue or a factor in terms of who became the central uh, figures. People like Joseph Gelders, for example, mm-hmm. and his his daughter Marge Gelders were among those. Um, and so, you know, this is not to say that there wasn't an interest in in kind of Marxism or an interest in understanding the rest of the world beyond a kind of biblical framework. In fact, um, there was political education that took place. the, I
1: remember uh, one of the things that you said in the book was that, uh, when I think it was Hosea Hudson was sent to New York to, for the, for that political education, for those classes by the party that he came back and, and something like he had never felt more right. kind of dignified, more like a man. And that, and that's, that's really amazing. And, and, you know, uh, th- that's awesome.
2: Yeah. Well, what's great, but he went to New York, but he also went to the Soviet Union <laughs> right. Right. Which is the other thing. So he went, uh, Henry O Mayfield, uh, went, uh, and they, they studied at, um, a school, basically the Lennon school. Then there's also another school called, uh, the university of dwellers of the East Cuba. So imagine, just think about what it means to grow up in Georgia or Alabama, but mm-hmm. to be like Al Murphy, for example, is another one who they know the South. They know churches. They know unions. Um, they have spent some time in grade school, usually a, a segregated schoolhouse where they would only be in school for maybe a few months out of the year because they'd be kids of sharecroppers. Um, and then suddenly free passage right. to the USSR <laughs> to go to Moscow. Right. <laughs> and you've never been outside. I mean, some of those cats have never been outside the state of Alabama. So that was something that was extraordinary. And What's interesting is that some of them went there without basic literacy skil- skills. So mm. it, was, it wasn't like they were studying you know, Lenin and Marxist selected works. They were just learning to read and write and in circles with people from all over the globe, from different levels of political education. And they did come back um, really emboldened uh, emboldened in terms of their ability to organize, in terms of knowledge of the world. Uh, and then also the other source of education was the fact that there's a press. There was, so the Southern mm-hmm. Worker was published, uh, sharecroppers and, and, or, and workers would write letters to the Southern Worker, which would be published. They read the Daily Worker. They read the Labor Defender, which was the International Labor Defense uh, Journal. Uh, they read the Negro Worker which was an international publication that circulated among some of the Alabama comrades that told stories about struggles in South Africa and Kenya and in in Australia, places like that. Um, I mean, it was an amazing uh, thing. And so what I do talk about in the book is that a lot of the uh, women, young girls in particular, were the ones who usually had more formal education and they Mm. tend to be literate in part because the the avenues of, say, working in a steel mill wasn't open to them. So for girls, black girls growing up in Alabama, um, they call it the farmer's daughter effect. You had to uh, get as much education as possible to be a teacher or a social worker. Mm. So they would be reading out loud to whole groups of working people under a shady tree or in a park, just reading from pages of the Southern worker. And that's how people who couldn't read got the information. So imagine what it meant. It meant that, and this is one of my favorite stories, that in, when, when Ernst Hellman who was a German communist uh, was thrown in prison under Hitler, and this is before the real takeoff of um, um, the Third Reich, uh, there was a whole campaign to free him. So you have these uh, African-Americans never left Alabama young people putting out posters and leaflets uh throughout tallapoosa county saying free Ernst Tailman. and the owners of the plantation like who who is this what are you doing and so when they say <laughs> that there was a conspiracy and there were reds i mean it's kind of true
1: you know? yeah yeah yeah
2: I mean, they just happen to be black
1: right you know? Yeah, well, I mean, you know, the whenever during the civil rights movement, you know, one of the things uh, that that you'll see from some of the white reactionaries is like race mixing is communism, and it's like, well, I mean, you know,
2: there's, <laughs> there's, there's, there's it, yeah,
1: I mean, you're not completely wrong, but, but
4: Yes. Uh, we've got a couple of questions coming in.
2: Yeah.
1: We've got okay. a couple of questions. I've, I've seen the, I, I've seen the YouTube chat and I'm, I, I'm working Good. on incorporating them in, in as okay. uh so I, yeah, I've got those in my head, David. Okay. I appreciate it. Um, but yeah, the uh, you, you said that, um, you know, there's a lot of this international cooperation in the party uh, on the part of these folks who uh, that, you know, a phrase that I, I use is I ain't never been nowhere. You know, I, mm-hmm. I'm just some, you know, a uh, guy who grew up in rural Alabama. I ain't never been nowhere. And these, these folks, have, they ain't never been nowhere. And now they're going internationally and learning all of these things. And there's a lot they're they're talking about free, freeing German communists mm-hmm. from, you know, Nazi oppression kind of stuff. But th- there's also a lot of really interesting autonomy uh that right. that the alabama communist party had that that i would like for you to talk about some because the uh you know there were a lot of international uh drama so to s- i mean you know i mean it's more more I- important than that but uh, there was a lot of international conflicts within the international communist right. movement that the alabama communists were like you know, whatever will take the party line, but it doesn't really matter to us. They were really kind of singularly focused on, or I mean not singularly, but they were really focused on how do I make my life better?
2: Right, right. That is absolutely true. Because you cannot peg the different machinations of the Communist International to what was happening on the ground. So to just give you three quick examples, one Um, The Communist Party's position in 1928 was that uh, Black people in the Black Belt uh, counties of the South have a right to self determination, a right to succeed from the Union if they choose to and have their own nation. Well, I mean, it was an empowering idea, but it wasn't like folks who were trying to figure out how to not be evicted from their house or who needed coal um, because they hadn't, you know, they had burned all the firewood they had just to keep warm. They weren't thinking about that. They were thinking about what to do next. And so they developed all these strategies that were so local, like using penny postcards to send to social workers to say, you know, if you take the workers' flour and stuff, um, we're, we're after you. We're going to expose you. In fact, we know that you're sleeping with the principal of the school, and we're going to expose that information. That's the, that's the strategy. Um, strategies also involve things like being really underground, using jumper cables to get people's lights back on without being detected. But in terms of I the liked international... that one. That was really you know, <laughs> <laughs> But, you know, in 19... There was one change. Well, another change I should mention is that when they had the Nazi-Soviet pact uh, and the, um, the Communist Party went from being, like, strongly, you know, anti-fascist to then focusing on... Uh, supporting the Soviets uh, agreement with the Nazis in 1939, which was a bad decision, but was, was meant to be a kind of stopgap measure to try to keep the um, Germans from invading Russia. Whatever the case may be in terms of how one reads it, the fact that it matters, that it didn't matter to people on the ground. That wasn't right. their fight. Um, and, but the one place where it did matter internationally was in 1935 when the Communist International decided um, they're going to, uh, you know, open up the Popular Front idea so that they could build alliances with liberals. And this is where in in Alabama it was a little bit different in that um, the the party leadership did try hard to do just that to build alliances with white liberals in the South, often at the expense. Of the working class struggles, the expense, not so much the expense of the union, because they were kind of going kind of underground participating in the union, but really at the expense of the unemployed, expense of, of all those kind of grassroots struggles. And the idea was if we can just get a broader base that we'll be stronger. But the problem is that in a place like Alabama, like Georgia, like Louisiana, Mississippi, to be a liberal, um, in the South, be a white liberal was to be less radical <laughs> than some of the white working class comrades. Um, liberals were, were devoted to Jim Crow, were committed to the status quo. Uh, liberals were like Hugo Black, who was a uh, you know, Supreme Court justice, but also started out in the Klan. That's what liberals look like. So what they ended up doing is, is cutting some of their ties and undermining the, the sort of working class foundation that they had. Uh, in in trying to chase down liberals that they could never win, instead of what they did, they, they did get were um, really amazing radical intellectuals like Joseph Gelders, um, you know, like and like people. I should I could say this now, uh, like um, uh, like Rosa Parks, you know, who mm, wasn't a member right. of the party, but she was very close to those folks. Um, Sally Davis who's uh, the mother of Angela Davis. I mean, there's a a lot of interesting people who are close to the party, if not members.
1: Right. Right. That's, and, and so, you know, there was a, there was a lot of focus on kind of um, what can make my life better? What, what's happening on the ground and how can we use the party to, um, you know, make our lives better. And, and so what were, and, and one of those, ways that they saw was the labor movement and i think this will this will be a good good way to bring us into what's happening today but what were the alabama communist party's um connections to the labor movement and how did they how did they use the the labor movement for uh kind of for their own ends and how did they uh work with the labor movement you know what what was the the intersection there of, of the labor movement and the party in alabama
2: right well, to answer the question, how did they use the movement for their own ends? Their ends were um, simple to build a strong labor movement. <laughs> right. <laughs> and so that's, that's really, I mean, that's just something to a point of clarity for, for your listeners, because.
1: Yeah, I um, appreciate that. That was not, yeah. that was not good wording on my part.
2: No, no, you. no, but, but no, but it's, it's exactly, I'm glad you said it that way, because actually that's, that is, that is how we think often of it. And I think it's important to, to frame it that way because, because it is true that what they want to do is build a strong labor movement because their argument was, we need a strong labor movement because that's how you build a strong working class movement. And so the party, so you got to think of it as sort of three different phrase, phases. The first is before the CIO, where the party was uh, the, the main force in town. It, in 1934, Alabama experienced a massive uh, strike wave, textile workers, um, steel workers, miners. And the Communist Party was behind not so much the textile workers, but the other strikes. They really were building uh, a movement and they had these alternative unions, um, maritime workers in, in Mobile. Um, and so they were building a union movement. And then, the, then with the New Deal, uh, and with the Second New Deal, um, the opportunity for industrial organizing—you know, this is First New Deal is like the National Industrial Recovery Act—but then uh, the, with the Wagner Act, it was like a, 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 a catalyst for really building industrial unions, and that's where the CIO comes into play. And so here, the role of the party was not so much to be open because this so coincides with the Popular Front, but but to go as individual. Uh, activists mm-hmm. as integral organizers into the unions, and they were the best organizers. Eb right. Cox, I mean Eb Cox and Henry O. Mayfield and 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 Jose Hudson, uh, Asbury Howard, which wh- who wasn't a communist but very close to the party, was the leader of the International Union of Mine, Mills and my Workers, along with Reed, with with Van Jones um, and a m- bunch of other folks who were like either in or close to the party, mm. and so they built the CIO, but more importantly, and this is very, very important, they pushed for an agenda in which unions were also fighting in communities for voting rights. Mm. So the right to vote club was a union, uh, had a union connection. Communists Mm. were organizing right to vote clubs and were pushing CIO members, black members in for politics to to have that right preserved. And all the sort of third, period you get is because the book technically is about the depression, but it has a long chapter that goes into the forties and fifties and into Mm -hmm. that present. And in that chapter, I talk about um, the left led unions and how the cold war and red baiting and and anti-communism really were intended as a, as a a weapon to undermine in particular international union, of mind, mental and smelter workers, which is strong investment. And in that union, its leader, Asbury Howard, uh, was really a kind of civil rights, union, working class, brilliant organizer, who then was attacked on all sides uh, through the anti-communist work. In 1949, the CIO, which by that time was really run by anti-communists, forced all the left unions to either sign a loyalty oath and do all kinds of things or be expelled. And mine, Mm -hmm. mill was expelled in 1949,
1: right? Yeah. You said that, you know, these organizers were really good and the unions were, were really effective. What were some of the, what were some of the things that they actually, that they actually won for their members?
2: Um, Well, you know, in the best examples tend to be the rural areas, but just in terms of the urban and um, you know, the most important thing that they were able to do the steel workers, organizing committee SWAC uh, and through mine mill, and United Mine uh, Workers, um, those three big unions, um, party organizers, party members, were the ones that were able to recruit and win over um, uh, uh, workers. And and those and that's how the unions were able to survive. And they built the CIO in many ways. But they also fought um, company unions. And this mm-hmm. is something we don't always talk about. I mean, we'll get to this with respect to the Amazon workers, but one of the ways that, um, what, see, just your viewers may or may not know this history, but in those days, because of an, a strong National Labor Relations Board and because of the Wagner Act, which made all this possible, um, the, the, the NLRB was actually friendly to unions, which <laughs> has not been the case for right. a while, but actually supported unions, supported the idea of unions. And so when Tennessee Coal Nine Company, for example, would fire 160 workers for going on strike, um, the NLRB would say, go back to Tennessee uh, Coal & and said, you know you can't do that. That's illegal, you've got to reinstate them. So one of the things that happens in, in Alabama throughout the South, and throughout the country, is that in order to get around, in order to continue union breaking and to get around the new labor law, you create a company union the company mm-hmm. unions are not new but but these company unions are specific to this moment so
1: um, uber's trying to make some right now
2: yes, they are they are and and that's one of the questions about what's going to happen to Amazon but um, to give you one one precise example, the Brotherhood of captive miners was a union it was a company union that was created uh, in response to mine mill and what those communist organizers were able to do was succeed in both um, forcing union recognition and recruiting members from the Brotherhood of Captive Miners into Mine Mill. Right. Um, so they were really good organizers in that respect. They would, you know, and to be an organizer in a union often doesn't mean doing anything, let's say, heroic but mm-hmm. really being able to mobilize people and get them to stick with it and to win those elections. And that's right. what they were able to do, get them to win those elections um, by basically letting people know through uh, education work what the union is, is there for. Right.
1: All right, next up, as we are taking a look at some of the best of from the Valley Labor Report, let's take another look at, or let's take a a look at another segment from a couple of years ago, back when we were in the Athens studio, uh, where we take a look at some then recent research on the effect of Act 10 on Wisconsin public school teachers. There was a story that I saw this week, uh, a working paper that came out um, that I thought was really interesting. And what it was, was that... um, So... You know, Scott Walker was the governor of Wisconsin for quite a while, and he, was, he earned a reputation as one of the most anti-union, anti-worker politicians in yeah. the country. I mean, he led a full frontal assault on working people in Wisconsin. And following that, a gender pay gap has arisen where none existed before between teachers, a recent study has found. The researchers that did this study controlled for non-gender related factors like education, experience, performance reviews, etc., and they found that the gap could not be attributed to any of these other factors. After they controlled for these other factors, the pay gap between men and women is now approximately 11% where it was zero before among teachers. That is astounding. That is really astounding. And so let's, let's back up just a second and kind of set the stage for what, how that happened. So when I say that Walker led an assault on workers, what do I mean? He did lots of things, but specifically Act 10 is what the researchers attribute this new gender pay gap to. And what ha- what Act 10 is a law that was passed in Wisconsin in 2010 that, one, virtually eliminated collective bargaining rights for public sector employees. They could not, no longer bargain over hours or, um, or anything over base pay. It ended tenure and seniority-based raises... And it mandated recertification annually. That means every year there's a union election for public sector employees. Wow. wow, That is... That's unheard of. That is not normal. Every year you've got to vote to recertify the union. And that makes unions there perpetually, perpetually um, vulnerable to union-busting campaigns. It never ends. And so before Act 10... Union contracts covered all teachers. Uh, they covered men and women and everybody, you know, all, uh, the, you know, with the same experience in education and everything. You know, obviously, they got the same pay and benefits. They were on a schedule. Now, teachers are responsible for negotiating their own wages individually. And because of this, a pay gap has arisen. And again, I just want to stress that the pay gap did not, the researchers controlled for all the other like relevant factors, education, experience, performance reviews, all of these things, they were controlled for. The only thing that can explain this pay gap was the gender and the reluctance of women to ask for a raise. Yeah. And th- this was an interesting tidbit, though. There was still no pay gap where there were female supervisors. That I thought that was interesting. That is interesting. That's
4: but, strange that they would have included that in their data, but that's yeah. extremely interesting.
1: That I thought that was interesting. I'm not exactly sure what it tells us, um, but but you know, I thought it was uh, I thought it was interesting to mention, but even though there's been a pay gap, maybe, you know, the thing that you're thinking is like, oh, well, men are making more than they did before Act 10. You would be wrong. Even the men who are now making 11% more than their exactly similar exactly the same female colleagues they have lower salaries than they did before Act 10 passed. In fact, Act 10 purported to usher in a new era of educational excellence and teacher performance.
4: <laughs> yeah. Okay. ain't that the ploy that it's always under.
1: Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's, and, and so wh- what actually happened? We can evaluate this now. We can evaluate what it did. It's 10 years after its passage. So what happened? Five years after its passage, median pay was down by nearly $11,000 annually. $11,000. That is insane, especially knowing the fact that teachers are already underpaid. Teacher turnover rates are nearly double what they were before. The percentage of teachers with less than five years' experience has in- increased by nearly 25% in Wisconsin. And so, obviously, student educational achievement has decreased. Yeah. It has done the opposite of everything that it purported to set out to do.
4: It would be real interesting to know if they done data on those border counties. You know, as far as like on the border uh, of Michigan and other states to see if the amount of teacher turnover is that, you know, because, hey, if I'm if I'm within 30 minutes of being able to Mm -hmm. drive across the state lines and go to work at another school with good collective bargaining, I guarantee you their their turnover rate is is way higher than that.
1: They um, you know, I don't know about specific border counties in Wisconsin, but they did mention the fact that Minnesota has not seen any of these. Any yeah. of these drastic, yeah. I mean, these are drastic changes, right? We're talking about in 10 years, teacher turnover rates doubling, the percentage of teachers with less than five years experience increasing by a quarter. These are huge. Their pay being down by $11,000. $11, $11,000? That's
4: like. Yeah, that's insane.
1: That is, I mean, we're already to, underpaid. Already way underpaid. You're talking about a teacher pay, you're talking about. Cutting twenty-five or twenty percent of their salary, almost certainly. That's, or, 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 or maybe a little bit less than that. But it's like that is a big chunk taken out of your paycheck every year. And it would be, it would be one thing if this all this happened and teachers just had a horrible job, but the, the students were better educated. But they're not. They're not. Student educational achievement has decreased.
4: Yeah, well, of course you've got younger you got younger teachers coming in
1: inexperienced
4: inexperienced teachers, and nothing against the younger teachers. They've got to cut their teeth as well. But yeah. at the same time, you need the tenured teachers in there to sh- show mm-hmm. them the ropes to teach them to teach them how to teach.
1: Right, right. Know? And, and, and so what we have learned, if you're, if you're, like, honest, right? If you're honest and you're just objectively looking at the facts and you're using logic, okay? That We like to, you know, Ben Shapiro likes to talk about facts and logic and facts don't care about your feelings, okay? What we have learned from Act 10 is that, funny enough, Reducing pay and benefits and control over the job debilitates worker morale, lowers performance, and hurts the consumers and the community. Yeah. Which, you know, like anybody with half a brain could tell you that. And anybody who has been in the workforce, I have said this I don't even know how many times. Anybody who's been in the workforce knows that management and supervisors get things wrong all the time and unions allow innovation they allow uh uh, workers a place to speak their mind and have control over their workplace and do their job better especially in these service oriented fields like healthcare and education you know it's not like these people are just uh uh you know you know hammering on something right These are care-oriented professions that we're talking about right now. And so they want to do, like teachers, nurses, doctors, they want to do their jobs better. And when they have unions, when they have protections in their workplace, they have more freedom to do their job better. They have more control over their workplace. And taking that away obviously hurts them, but it hurts everybody else too.
4: Yeah. It really speaks to solidarity and collective bargaining and being able to you know, a rising tide raises all boats. You know, Mm -hmm. it really speaks to the fact that when you break that down and start requiring people to negotiate independently for their salary, Mm -hmm. it's cutthroat. Yeah. You know, so-and-so is doing this. I should be making more. So-and-so is doing this. It's constant, you know?
1: Absolutely. It, it, I mean, it's, it's, it's totally constant and like, (laughs) I mean, it's just, it's really astounding. Like the way that, and, and, and you, you know, you mentioned that a rising tide lifts all boats. That is supposed to be the logic of trickle down and tax cuts. And we've seen it over and over and over and over. We've seen it in Kansas. We've seen it in Wisconsin. Yeah, we've work. seen it in America. It does not work. Unions work. Unions are the rising tide that does lift all boats. And the same people that are going to try to sell you on this BS, trickle-down, capitalist, corporate economics are going to be the ones that tell you that unions actually hurt workers. Unions hurt their community. And it's a bunch of nonsense. Like, you can't fall for it.
4: Yeah. Yeah. You left me speechless. I'm speechless. <laughs> yeah. It, we, we've only got a few more seconds. But, yeah, it's, it's a good point. And, and, I mean, I grew up watching Scott Walker. I remember mm-hmm. Scott Walker, and I remember all those teachers going into the Wisconsin mm-hmm. State Capitol and demanding respect. And uh, hopefully we'll get back to that soon, Man, especially so. in this state. Yeah. Especially in this state. I hope so.
1: Folks, this is the Valley Labor Report. We will be right back. Give us a call, 1-866-494-9866. You're listening to the Valley Labor Report with David Story and Jacob Morrison. the valley labor report it is saturday october 10th 2020 my name is jacob morrison here with my co-host david story we appreciate your time today um the we've, weather's
4: got everybody beat down, man. man the weather. I know. I'm surprised yeah. after all that great talk the last I know. We hour. We haven't got any callers. Yeah, we give, got a yeah caller give us a call. One eight six six four nine
1: four nine eight six six. The number is one eight six six four nine four W V N N. We've been talking about. Or, uh, the guest that we had in the first part of the program was Daniel Harris. He was talking about right to work and the and the Democrats and, and the conservative agenda to destroy worker power. And that was really interesting. You can go back and watch that later on our YouTube channel at the Valley Labor Report.
4: Um, you can check it out on the podcast if you're check, a podcast listener. That's
1: right. Check it out on the podcast. Um, and, 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 and after that, we've been talking about Act 10 and it's the destruction of public sector unions in uh, Wisconsin and how that has affected teacher pay, teacher morale, and student educational achievement. And in fact, talking about the destruction of public sector unions, the total union density in Wisconsin has de- decreased by 31%. Yeah,
4: that sounds surprising.
1: By 31% since 2000. Did Wisconsin
4: pick up any of that off of the West Virginia, you know, Colorado, Teacher strikes or anything like that. I don't recall I don't, I don't seeing so. Wisconsin I don't recal- doing anything.
1: Yeah, I don't. I don't recall anything like that. Uh, and that kind of speaks to
4: that Act Ten as well, because yeah. that would that would break down the ability to organize effectively. Yeah, I
1: imagine that the situation in West Virginia is similar to the situation in wisconsin now but now, it's like yeah yeah but it's like it was newer for wisconsin teachers and so maybe that's why they're like a little while to... yeah whereas with what people w- teachers in west virginia may ha- that's like the status quo and so they were used to organizing under those pressures and maybe they weren't in wisconsin maybe that was it but um but uh, uh so the reason that i did all this reading about like public sector unions and act 10 and wisconsin and all that is because of that study that found that there was no gender pay gap among teachers in wisconsin prior to um when you you know when you account for like uh, uh, other relevant factors like education and experience and all of these things and and you know time time spent in the workforce and and you know da 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 um there was no gender pay gap yeah well i mean
4: just just the amount of money alone that was lost i mean you're talking about That's an an insane... I know. I can't imagine taking that kind of cut.
1: uh, Yeah, it's crazy. And now there is a nearly 11% difference between the pay that uh, uh, a similarly situated male teacher gets to a similarly situated uh, female teacher. And that kind of, you know... and, And both of them are worse off than they were before. And that really in my mind kind of underscores the fact that like women's issues are workers issues. You know? Oh yeah. Yeah. Minority no issues are workers yeah. issues. Like we talked to uh, Jake Grumbach, uh, university of Washington researcher um, a couple of months ago now, I guess it was about the effect that union membership has on racism in the workplace and, and the effect that it has on um, racial pay gaps. Yeah. And you know, that's what like, unions and the labor movement are at the center of they have to be at the center of equality and any movement for such a goal um uh, because otherwise it's going to be ineffective
4: yeah i mean that's one thing that i'm so proud to be able to walk through my workplace Mm. with i I would say we probably have 15 20 percent female workers out there and to know that every one of them make the exact same thing that their counterpart sitting next to them does i mean it's 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 really uplifting yes you know i don't i i don't know its it yeah it it's 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 the best system that could Mm -hmm. be in place right now
1: and why the heck shouldn't you have a say over your workplace I mean that's like so you know like you people in America are so like beat down with this capitalist ideology that you're supposed to when should you be clock grateful. In.
4: should be great. I mean, yeah. that's what you hear constantly in this state. Just be grateful. You have a job, right? Right. Seriously?
1: Yeah. Be grateful that you have a job and just accept the fact that when you clock in, you become a subject and not a not citizen. Not just when
4: you clock in, this is something that we've been dealing with a lot here lately. Mm-hmm. When you're off hours, when you're not at work, the companies are still attacking you. Look at social media posts uh-huh. and things like that. I, they they will discipline and terminate mm. you for off the work social media posts. I yep. mean, it's not they own you. Yeah, as simple as that.
1: Yeah, and uh, you know, I, it, it's real like. When you talk about this, uh, uh, you know, this freedom loving, liberty loving, I hate the government energy that so many people have, like, I can get on board with that, man. Like, yeah. screw the government. Give yeah. me my liberty. Give me my guns. You know, like, this, you uh, it, folks, like, look, I'll, I'll let you in on a secret <laughs> here. I'll let you in on a secret. If you go left far enough, you get your guns back, okay? You get your guns back, all right? You just got to go left far enough. You got to get past them libs, okay? Got to get past the libs, and you get your guns back. But, um, you know, I'm, like, all about that. But the the folks that have that energy towards the government, they completely lose it when it comes to the boss. Like,
4: you know. Well, not just the boss. I mean, those same people are bootlickers all the way around.
1: Folks on this program, we love to lift up worker testimony. So I'm excited to show this, uh, show this interview to some folks who probably didn't hear it since we've got so many new listeners uh, from the time that this happened. This has been similarly over two years ago. And in this clip, we talked to a pipe fitter about, get this, making about $200,000 in one year with no college degree without being a boss check it out i am here now talking to james alexander he is a member of the steam fitters and pipe fitters union he's going to be talking to us about uh, being a, a steam, you know, it's that's another trade union. He'll be talking to us about what it's like being a steam fitter, pipe fitter. Um, so James, thanks for talking to me. I appreciate it, brother.
3: All right, man. Uh, glad to be here today, brother. Glad to be here.
1: All right, so um, James, tell us just the top line. One of the, the, this is, like, this amazed me. Tell us how much uh, you made without a college degree in, um, in California as a pipe fitter.
3: Okay, so I traveled out to California to work at Chevron refinery. They had a big modernization project going on. So, I done a 12-month run out in California. I was able to make a grand total of $207,000, and that's with 6 weeks off work. So, we had uh we had uh, vacations for like uh uh, Thanksgiving was a week. Uh, Christmas was a week. Fourth of July was a week off. And then we had a couple of brush fires out there. So we got time off. So I'd say I had a total of about six weeks off. But we worked six tens the whole time. And I was able to amass 207000 on the check. Now, that's not including my health and welfare benefits. They pay back to my union hall. And also another 19000 in retirement. that goes right back to your retirement plan.
1: I mean, that's like... You are going to be hard pressed to be able to make that kind of money without a college degree. With a, even with a college degree, uh, I've got I've got a I've got a a, a degree in math. And uh, even where I'm at in in a union, uh, you know, working working for the federal uh, federal government, there's no pathway for me to be making two hundred thousand dollars even with a math degree. Uh, so you know that's the kind of and no college degree. Started working out of high school um, with the pipefitters union, and that's the kind of stuff like that. You know, that's the kind of thing that we're talking about. And talk and you can make that, and not you know, you're not killing yourself. You're getting six weeks off. Six weeks off is a lot off for most people. Sorry. And talk talk to me about the safety aspects. Like we have we've talked on this show multiple times about how study after study comes out showing that union work sites have like considerably lower uh, fatality rates and injury rates, and that's because of the union. That's because the workers are there protecting each other. So talk to us about kind of the safety aspect yes, of sir. being a union pipe fitter. Yes
3: sir, so they they, they, they harp on safety on, on all job sites or whatever, as you go out, you'll always see um, they have uh, things in place for you to stop the job. If you see anything, doesn't look right. If you got any questions, uh, it's never a situation where you can get fired or get retaliated against because you stopped the job for a safety aspect. Um, you got your general foreman, you got your foreman, you got uh, uh, safety professionals on the job, and it's always uh, the biggest part of the job. Whatever they say, there's no job that's worth uh, uh, anyone getting injured or no time frame set up to try to beat a deadline to get someone injured. So uh, as you go through the you know the union side of it, you know. You always see safety at the uh, the forefront of uh, the job site. I mean, um, a lot of guys, you'll see this in safety. They've got over 20 years of time with the trade. As they get into their older years, they can't climb the scaffold like they used to. They go into safety professionals or whatever. And so you see them knowing your pain as you go through about trying to work with a guard or taking a guard off. They've got things in place for you to stop, uh, acknowledge what the issue is. And try to do it safely so i mean it makes you feel good about wanting everybody to go home every day just like they did when they came to work so it's a big part of our job you know to work safe
1: yeah i i would say so and you know a lot of people in the trades uh you know they don't have that if they're not in a union but they're in a in the trades You talked about, you know, some folks kind of have just get it done, that kind of just get it done attitude that you've seen in some non-union contractors and some supervisors and management and bosses just telling people to kind of forego some safety aspect to just get the job done. Um, And, you know, they they can't make you do that if you're in a union.
3: That's correct or whatever. You know, there's no repercussions for you uh, being able to call a timeout just to have another set of eyes to come in and look at something. You know, um, a lot of, you know, Older people or young people don't understand where we are as union members, but um, what they feel to realize is that somewhere along the lines, um, there was some blood spilled or blood shed for right. the union to be able to come in and set up the things that we have, such as the great pay, the great benefits, the great retirement, um, the safety of the job. Um, all that right there played the part in Somewhere along the line, someone shed some blood to be able to make it so now. We can go to work and, and, and our families can know we're coming home to them. Uh, we're coming home with a good paycheck, excellent benefits for your wife and your family. Mm-hmm. So uh, it's a win-win situation for those who are interested in it.
1: Uh, yeah, I, and that's that's so important, you know, being able to rely on like, I, I you know, I'm going to come home at the end of the day and I don't have to worry about that kind of stuff. And I don't have to worry about a boss trying to make me forego something that i know is dangerous that i know could get me killed i i feel confident in the fact that i can make sure i have a safe work site and that's something that you just you you just really can't place a price tag on that uh but what about what about the the retirement aspect you know uh,
3: all right and, and a lot of things what people don't understand so as a on a conventional job you got you got a lot of jobs now that they've went away from the company retirement, they have your 401k plans, and they'll they'll contribute a little bit. You contribute a little bit, so that's money out of your bring home salary. Well, a lot of times in the trade, we have a dollar value um, that's already written into our contract. So, in in essence, really all you do is go to work, and your benefits are paid. You know, you got uh, union halls like Philadelphia Local 420. They have an annuity, so you go to work out of one of those halls and you get like $13 to $14 for every hour you work, and it, and, it, and they call it pyramid. And so when you work a time and a half hour, you get time and a half money. So let's just say you work somewhere like 420 in Philadelphia. You can work six months, six days a week, and leave with something like 16000 in an annuity account. You can roll it back home to your local pension, or you can leave it in Philadelphia, and that's another 16 grand that's growing that's in an account for you. That's like Minnesota, Philadelphia, New Jersey, New York, you know, it's, it's 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 phenomenal the way they do their benefits package. And like I said, you had an option to leave the money there or roll it back home to your local pension if you want to keep it all under the same umbrella. But but that's not out of your hourly check. That's in addition to what you're getting paid. And they have scales like fifty-seven dollars an hour for a pipe fitter, fifty-three dollars, fifty-three dollars an hour for a pipe fitter. Um, somewhere like California, seventy-four dollars an hour for a pipe fitter. Wow. Um, Indiana is like forty-three dollars an hour for a pipe fitter so you know you you, it's just a wide open uh area out there if you want to travel go see the country it's like a paid paid, paid vacation
1: yeah well you know that that's another thing that i've i've that that's really cool to me that i've noticed talking to folks in the trade unions is that if you're if you're in if you work for a non-union contractor your job is kind of dependent on the local construction industry if construction slows down in huntsville and you're working for a non-union contractor And they lay you off it's like well that's that if construction slows down in huntsville and you work for the and and you're in a union you're in a trade union you can you can just go work somewhere else because there's always somewhere in the country that's building something and uh so if if work slows down you'll have a job somewhere else
3: yep we're we're, uh, you have 50 states plus canada the united association covers all 50 states and canada so you have the option to go and travel, You know, see the world, you know, as, as, you know, as, a, as a tradesman, make a lot of money, uh, good retirement, good benefits. Um, myself, personally, I've worked in refineries. I've worked in auto plants. I've worked in uh, computer chip plants, um, pretty much uh, natural gas plants. So I've pretty much seen everything. I mean, uh, the work is, a lot of the work is similar. A lot of it is a little bit different, but it's all union-supported uh, safety, you know, and good money.
1: Yeah, and and that's, again, like, you don't have, this isn't something that you've got to go to college for. Like, you can start right after, you can start their apprenticeship program right after you get out of high school and be on track to make good money, have a secure future, be able to work anywhere in the United States or Canada, know that you're going to have safety on your job, have a good retirement plan. I mean, this is just, it's not stuff that you can find in the non-union world.
3: Yes, sir, it's like, I, I just, I'll, I'll put numbers to the paper. Say a guy's 18 years old, graduate high school, not sure what he wanna do. If he's willing to start an apprenticeship program in five years, so that means he's 23 years old. Now, he can work in Alabama if he wants to, but at the age of 23 or 24, as a journeyman, craftman, pipe fitter, electrician, millwright, whatever, as a 23 year old young man, he could actually, with a, with a gas car, hotel room, he could go across the country and, at the age of 24 years old, be earning as much as $75 an hour without owing uh, any college, uh, any college money, or owing the federal government for student loan. He'd be free. The union hall has uh, gave him all the tools and the knowledge he needs, and he's already earning money as an apprentice. But as a journeyman, a 24-year-old man can be earning in excess of $150, $170,000 either.
1: Yeah, I mean that's that's. I mean, that's, that's really amazing. And, you know, like when we talk about the labor movement, when we talk about how unions are good for working people, they're good for their community. Like we're not just blowing smoke up your bum. Like we know what we're talking about. And this is, this is an example of what we're talking about. James, thank you so much for talking to us. All right, thank I you so much.
3: Well, thank you for having me.
1: You know, sadly, uh, since we moved to the spice radio studio, um, and we created our own phone number uh, instead of using the WVNN one, which is the name of the station that we started on. Uh, we don't get as many angry callers as we did when we used the station's number. I figure that you know, it's just a lot easier for angry callers to call a number that they know you know, like they, this is the, the, the number that we used before was, was the station's phone number. And so that's the same number that they heard, you know, 24 seven, basically. They wanted to call a show on that station. That's the number that they called. Um, and so since getting our, and I think that's the issue. I think that's the issue. That's one of the reasons that we don't get as many angry callers is because now we've got our own phone number and it's not as familiar to some of the folks in the conservative radio audience. I'm not sure what to do about that. Maybe I should just, say the number more often but uh here's a call from when we did get some more angry callers than we do now where he tells me that unions are unnecessary that goes about as well as you would think it is (laughs) as you would think it did uh here it is
4: we got a caller on the line we got steve on the line welcome in steve how are you doing this morning i'm doing fine Uh, um you guys Need to learn about an adage called beating beating a dead horse. Okay, do, do you do you understand that union membership has been on the decline in the Southeast United States for years, years? If you look around in Mississippi, Tennessee, Alabama, that, that all the, the the car manufacturers have voted
2: down unions. And you're you're beating the dead horse. You this, this 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 whole idea about organized labor and union and all that crap is is dead. It's going down. I, I, don't, dis, I don't
4: disagree with you. It has been on a decline. It's been on a decline because people, well, it's, but it's because our own our own working folks have voted because it's consistently. unnecessary it's unnecessary
1: because it's, unnecessary. <laughs> it's uh, unnecessary it's unnecessary well How? I'll tell you what you enjoy your weekend because that was won by people fighting and dying in the streets okay okay pantyways okay pantyways enough I, I, that that happened 50 years ago 50 years I'm is not that long
4: uh, 50 years is not that what? long Fifty years is not that long, and it won't take 50 years to lose it. I promise you. You get rid of unions? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I mean, they've already put I mean, in regulations at- to cut overtime for workers.
1: We've been talking about Act 10, the second, all second half of the program. We've been talking about Act 10 in Wisconsin and how... Only 10 years after its passage, median pay for teachers in Wisconsin is down $11,000. You don't think that the same thing, you don't think that those politicians, those bosses, those corporate oligarchs are after your pay? Public sector union. What? We'll we'll bring you in on the other side of the break. Stay tuned. This is the Valley Labor Report.
2: You're listening to the Valley Labor Report
1: with David Storey and Jacob Morrison. Yeah. Folks, good morning and welcome back to the Valley. Labor Report. My name is Jacob Morrison here with my co-host David Story on the line. I believe we still have Steve. Steve was telling us that unions are unnecessary because now he has the weekend and he doesn't feel like he deserves any more. And I just got through telling him how we were talking about Act 10 and how only 10 years after its passage, median pay was down by more than $11,000 for teachers. And then he mentioned something about the private sector. And here's what I will say about the private sector, since union membership started declining in the 60s, median pay for workers has stagnated while productivity has skyrocketed. CEO to worker uh, ratio pay has increased from 25 to one to 320 to one. Who is doing the pro- who is doing the producing? Who is making that productivity rise? It's the workers, and the CEOs are now making more than 300 times what their workers are making on average and it just so happens to coincide with the decimation of union membership and the labor movement in america in concert with the agenda by corporate oligarchs and politicians in the democratic and the republican parties assault on labor and so now steve after that i'll let you tell me why unions are unnecessary
4: i guess steve didn't want to hang out during the break oh did he not Looks that way. That's unfortunate. It is unfortunate. It's unfortunate. unfortunate that people can't come on here. Yeah, you know, here's I the mean, thing, what you get away with on, on every other station. You can come on, you can make some asinine statement and then walk away from it because facts don't matter. Yeah. Facts and, and, don't matter.
1: And you talk about talk about private sector union membership. My my good brother Jeb Miles with the Ironworkers... He said, "Right now in North Alabama, union ironworkers make a package of over forty-four dollars an hour. Non-union ironworkers make twenty dollars an hour or
4: less." Yeah, that's in I the mean, private I mean, look, sector. the fact is, we're we are making. I, I I'm making about the when when you take inflation into into uh, the the aspect, I'm making about the same thing my father made mm-hmm. thirty years ago. We are not, and there's a reason why. Everyone's in debt up to their eyeballs. Nobody's got a $500 in their savings account. They're barely scraping by. Mm -hmm. Social security is constantly under attack. Pensions have been under attack. They are doing everything they can to make you subservient and work for the rest of your life. (laughs) And you're going to sit here and say (laughs) unions aren't necessary. I I can tell you, if you walk out anywhere in public and most people are literally weeks away from bankruptcy mm -hmm. if they were to lose their job today and unions aren't necessary anymore. Well, I mean, mean, this is bootlicking mentality. It's crazy. It's like, and, and, and like why
1: do workers not deserve the fruits of their labor? Why, why do workers not deserve to get a fair contract? Why why do workers not deserve to have control over their workplace? Why do workers—why should workers have to check in or have to live their entire lives under the surveillance and the eye of their boss and, like— like live at their beck and call like that's absurd it's absurd and the only way and and like Steve mentioned this and it's true unions have been on the decline since the 60s since the 70s since there's been a concerted assault on organized labor since there's been a concerted assault on working people by corporate oligarchs and politicians in both parties and uh, but the 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 uh, so that is true. But that's why we're on the radio right now. Yeah, I mean, here's the thing. Because we want to change that, because the only way to make our lives better, the only way to reverse the trend of CEOs stealing our uh, our labor from us, the only way to take back our time, the only way to get a fair cut of the things that we're producing is to organize.
4: Yeah. Here's the thing. Answer me honestly. If you're out there driving in your car right now, the car that you signed a contract for— The car that you're making payments on or if you're sitting in your house today the house that you signed a contract for the house that you're making payments on who in their right mind would go to a bank and say we don't need a contract I'll let you change the interest rate anytime you want I'll let you raise the payments anytime there's really no reason because hey I I can come back in and renegotiate like yeah, as, as often as I want, right? Who do you think's going to renegotiate? Mm-hmm. You know, the, the, this idea that that you can just you can just go into your boss independently and get you a raise every year is insanity. Get a contract. Who mm-hmm. who? The most important thing you're going to ever do in your life is work. Yeah. And you should have a contract stating what those working conditions are. You sign a contract for your car. You sign a co- and it holds both parties accountable. Mm-hmm. You sign a contract for your house, but yet you don't think you need a contract for work to hold both parties accountable. Yeah, no. it's insane. It's insane.
1: Alrighty, folks, we are going to round out our overtime segment today with Adam's thoughts about Alabama's troublemaker school this year.
0: I did want to take a couple of minutes to reflect on last weekend's successful Alabama troublemaker school conducted by Labor Notes at the University of Montevallo. Over 120 Southern working class activists gathered on Saturday, October 15th to sharpen their skills and build their solidarity. The crowd was very diverse in terms of race, gender, age, industry, occupation, affiliation, and background. There were seasoned union stewards with decades of experience, new organizers just starting the fight to build a union, and community activists seeking to strengthen their coalition with labor. There were folks from across the state and from North Carolina, Tennessee, and Georgia in attendance. Numerous unions and organizations were represented with CWA and Raise Up the South, in particular, showing up in a big way. And there were some familiar faces there from IFPTE, Hometown Action, UMWA, RWDSU, Birmingham DSA, Starbucks Workers United, United Campus Workers, and more. And how many other spaces will you find worker-led discussion and workshops with participants ranging from line cooks to rocket scientists in the same room? Right, I-, I just don't know of many events that are like that.
4: Yeah, it's it was it was amazing. You know, I didn't I didn't I wasn't able to attend, uh, but I saw the pictures and I and I heard the stories that y'all have come back and, you know, just the fact that that. The labor movement's growing in this state, you know, says a lot about this Right? We were talking about it before the show. It says a lot about this radio show and uh, how how y'all have kind of bridged the gaps between labor and labor-friendly organizations and, you know, organizations that kind of share our own our own uh, perspective and ideologies.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I, well, I give you a lot of credit for that because, you know, you and Jacob got this thing started and, and I've been fortunate enough to step in and try to help out where I could. And, um, yeah, I'm really proud of, of what we've accomplished, and, and I'm proud to, to see the Troublemaker School be so successful. I think, um, there's a lot of good things to see coming from Alabama's labor movement, and it's it's trending in the right direction. Yeah. It's about time. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, you know, back to Saturday, you had folks from call centers to coal mines learning from each other and swapping stories. And I think there's something very powerful about that, uh, something pretty damn cool about that, really. And I want to thank Labor Notes for being willing Mm -hmm. to invest in the working people of Alabama and the South, so that we can put the movement back into the Southern labor movement. And shout out to all the folks who served on the planning committee, the speakers and trainers, and everyone else who volunteered in any capacity to make this event a success. Uh, It was an honor for me to conduct a couple steward's workshops alongside a great brother from the CWA, Matt Flone. And I know when we were in Chicago for the big Labor Notes conference in June, those of us from Alabama were already scheming on how to bring Labor Notes back home. By July, Louise Leon and Courtney Smith from Labor Notes already pulled several of us together to form an organizing committee and begin the planning of this event. We all worked together to plan the content and organize the logistics. It was really it was a collective effort and a collective success. And David, you and I were talking before the show. It was, what, three or four years ago when Labor Notes last held an event in Alabama. Uh, I happened to meet up with you and Jacob down there at the Adelante Worker Center, and there was maybe a dozen people there, you know, 12, yeah, 15. Yeah, I bet. A- and so to have roughly 10 times that number of attendees at this year's Troublemaker School, I think really demonstrates the energy of the resurgent labor movement here in Alabama and across the South. Yep, yep. And, and, s-
4: and there, you know, there's there's, I love labor notes. You know, I've always been a big fan of labor notes, been a subscriber for years and know most of the staff there uh, personally. But the, we don't have to have labor notes come down. You know, we could do this every year uh, you know, and, and, and that's what, and I think that's kind of the point of what Labor Notes wants to build is something, uh, something that's organic in your own community, And sustainable. Yep.
0: And I, I 100% agree with you, and I think there were a lot of conversations last weekend about, hey, let's not let this be the last one, um, let's keep it going, and you're right, um, you know, Labor Notes helped us kick it off, but... We've got the people right here, we've got the expertise, and and so I personally, I hope everyone who attended learned something useful and formed some new connections to grow their allies. And I can't wait to see the lasting impact that comes out of it because I know it it certainly made a difference in some of those relationships, if not the knowledge is gonna make a, a lasting impact. And for those of you who couldn't attend, be sure to check out last week's episode of the Valley Labor Report, where Jacob interviewed several of the workshop trainers. It's not a replacement for having been there, but it will give you an idea of what we learned and discussed on Saturday, and hopefully advance your learning when it comes to the labor movement and organizing. Thanks again, Labor Notes. Really appreciate it. Looking forward to the next Troublemaker School. As David said, uh, we can do this and we should keep doing it.
4: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. If nothing else, you know, just getting those rank and file members together to talk about how to move forward in this state and progress our ideologies and our agendas, and uh, you know, uh, the it, it's important. Everybody else does it, except for us. You know, we, we yeah, yeah. Granted, we've got AFL-CIO conventions and things like that, but there's never. There's never really a, a space like what Labor Notes provides, you know, where where rank and file members talk about those issues and not uh, people that are separated from you in leadership positions.
0: Right. And you know something you just said that resonated is that if you think about it, the bosses and politicians are always doing these kind of events, right? They're always networking. They're always at the golf course or at the casino or- CPAC. Right, they're always getting together. They're always uh, sharpening their skills and building their solidarity amongst themselves.
1: So I think it's imperative that we do the same. Thanks everybody for tuning in. I really appreciate it. I hope you've enjoyed uh, this trip down memory lane. Uh, while I was searching for clips, I actually found more than we would fit in a normal runtime. So what we're going to be doing is dropping a double overtime in a couple of days with some of these clips, some some of the extra clips that uh, that we found that uh, that we wanted to share with you that we did not have room to share in the main runtime. So make sure that you're subscribed to the channel so that you see that in your feed. Until then. Send us money at tvlr.fm/donate. Stay safe and all power to the working class.